Last week, we left off with a shootout between the Feds and the Branch Davidians. Today, we finish our conversation on Waco by discussing the increasingly intense standoff, failed negotiation attempts, the Fed's deadly siege on Mount Carmel compound, and federal investigations into the handling of the entire situation in Waco. One way or another, today we're bound to piss some people off. I'm Mike. I'm Ian. And I'm Dave. If you thought part one of this story was a barn burner, stick around. Part two is an absolute inferno. This is Necronomapod. Under the blistering Texas sun, investigators comb the smoldering remains of the Branch Davidian compound. More than 80 people are believed to have died in yesterday's fiery conclusion to the 51-day siege, 24 of them children. Today, the FBI said it's not responsible for the deaths. Those children are dead because David Koresh had them killed. There's no question about that. He had those fires started. He had 51 days to release those children. He chose those children to die. We didn't have anything to do with their death. The FBI said cult members didn't panic as tanks began to ram the compound, yet calmly, apparently under orders from Koresh, began to gather in an underground bunker. So you guys think we're going to get ourselves in, uh, in trouble this week? We're going to uh, piss, piss probably. some people off? Sure, yeah. of course. What fun would it uh, would it be if we didn't? Yeah. Well, the uh, the Ruby Ridge one, I think, had people from both sides getting pissed at us. So I guess that means we did something right. Yeah. They didn't like it. Some people didn't like it. Not really two sides, though. It's uh, just a bunch of fuck-ups on both sides. Yeah. We just prevent, presented the facts as we know them. Yeah. So we got a lot to get to this week with uh, wrapping up the Waco story. So we're just going to jump into it. But pretty much where we left off last week, the ATF rolled up to the house. There was gunfire. Both sides blamed the other one's other side for shooting first. There was a shootout that lasted two hours. Two right? hour shootout. It was long. It was a long shootout. Um, and we'll never know who shot first. We won't know. And then, uh, then there was a ceasefire. People dead on both sides, including multiple ATF agents. So now you got federal agents dead, which is going to piss a lot of other agents off. And then uh, that's where we kind of put a halt on things. So Ian, pick it up from there. The FBI took command soon after as a result of the deaths of the federal agents like you were just saying and they placed jeff jamar who was the head of the bureau's san antonio field office in charge of the siege as site commander the fbi hostage rescue team uh, headed by hrt commander richard rogers who had previously been criticized for his actions during the ruby ridge incident as at ruby ridge rogers often overrode the site commander at Waco and had mobilized both the blue and gold HRT tactical teams to the same site, which ultimately created pressure to resolve the situation tactically. Do you think he was the head of the hostage rescue team because he was stealth because he was the night stalker, Richard Rogers? Or that, oh, I'm sorry. That's Richard Ramirez. <laughs> it's my bad joke for the day. I wanted to get it out early. <laughs> screen door intruder. <laughs> we really got to get screen door intruder shirts. We should. That would be awesome. Be a big seller. At first, the Branch Davidians had telephone contact with local news media, and Koresh attempted to give a phone interview. <laughs> <laughs> Call leader David Koresh, you're on the air. <laughs> the FBI cut Davidian communications to the outside world, and for the next 51 days, communication with those inside was by telephone by a group of 25 FBI negotiators headed by Gary Nesner. Have you read his book? I know he wrote a book after he retired. No, I, I, want, I, I, guess, I wanted to pick that up. Yeah, I think I'm going to read that. Yeah, I guess it's like about a bunch. It's a 
collection of a bunch of different things. I think that'd be really interesting. Yeah. We'll talk about the stress not just the Waco one. Yeah, I'm sure it's a bunch. Yeah. In the first few days, the FBI believed that they had made a breakthrough when they negotiated with Koresh an agreement that the Branch Davidians would peacefully leave the compound in return for a message recorded by Koresh being broadcast on national radio. The broadcast was made, but Koresh then told negotiators that God had told him to remain in the building and, quote, wait. So God reneged. It's his fault as usual. It's always yeah. God's fault. So they had worked out this deal, right? The negotiators had it. Koresh said, put out my message, let it be broadcast, and then we'll all come out. The FBI did that, followed through on their end, and then afterwards, Koresh goes, no, never mind. Right. Okay. So strike one, Koresh. I just want that out there for yeah. later if we start shitting on the the, uh, the feds, sure. and maybe rightfully so. This They had a, a perfect agreement, and then Koresh is the one who backed out. Could have ended right then and there. Could have saved a ton of lives. Despite this... Soon afterwards, negotiators managed to facilitate the release of 19 children ranging in ages from 5 months to 12 years old without their parents. Due to the stress of the situation, the mothers inside weren't producing milk for their babies. The deal was worked out to where the FBI would give them milk for the babies, but Koresh had to let some of the kids out. Uh, Initially, this idea was pushed back by the tactical team as being too nice to the Branch Davidians, but it was ultimately agreed on when they figured out a way to bug the milk so they could hear what was going on inside the compound. And the fact that you said kids from five months to 12 years without their parents, that was a a choice by the Davidians, right? They didn't want the parents leaving the adults. Right. So that was, again, that was their choice. It wasn't like the FBI was saying, just give us your kids and we don't want you. Oh, sure. I say it's kind of, you know, punishing the kids. They don't want to give them milk. I don't know. Yeah. Seems a bit much. And then they bug the milk that they put in there. During the siege, the FBI negotiators recorded a video and sent it into the compound. They wanted the Branch Davidians to see that they weren't trying to be aggressive like the tactical team was. And they wanted to to show them that they had kids as well and, and they truly cared about getting them all out of there safely. In response, the Branch Davidians made a similar tape for the FBI. In the videotape made by Koresh's followers, Koresh introduced his children and his, quote, wives to FBI negotiators, including several minors who claimed to have had babies fathered by Koresh. Uh, and there was a bunch of, sev- there were several Branch Davidians that also made statements in this video. So, what, go ahead. I said, wouldn't you be embarrassed if you, I don't know, impregnated a bunch of minors? Not if you believe your own shit, though. <laughs> I mean, he thinks that he, he's chosen to do yeah. that. It's hard to put yourself in that spot. I'd be so embarrassed. You want to put out a video. Here, here's the kids I fucked and right. and fathered kids with. Yeah, it's not great. So you're already kind of seeing like a split within the FBI. Like you have the negotiators who are really trying to work on a diplomatic like resolution to this. And then you got like the, uh, the, the tactical team that's like gearing up for like war and ready to go do battle. And the negotiators are like, hey, you know, we're trying yeah. to do this peacefully here. I wonder if that's common in, in situations like this with the FBI. I bet it is. Probably in every situation they deal with. Yeah. I, I think that's probably right. Yeah. From there was a Waco documentary I was watching and there was a retired FBI guy on there talking. And his exact words was that the tactical team views negotiators as pussies. It was his exact quote that they're pussies. You, you can almost see that like they would have that mindset. Like they're the ones that are going there forcefully and get shit done. Yeah. The negotiators are just, you know, they're pansies. They want to talk things yeah, out. We don't negotiate with terrorists, criminals right. kind of thing. Yeah, I 100% could see and that. In the end, you really, I think you just need a good balance. If, if you had a, a negotiator that was competent and wanting to work 
with the head of the tactical and he was competent and willing to work together, you can come up with a good balance and probably be a lot more successful, obviously, than if you're divided. Sure. I agree. On day nine, Monday, March 8th, the Branch Davidian sent out the videotape to show the FBI that there were no hostages, but in fact, everyone was staying inside of their own free will. Do we believe that? Um, I think that people thought they were, I guess. I think Koresh, like he always said, people could leave if they wanted to. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't really show it in the show too, too much, but like if, they, if people wanted to leave, they had to sit down and talk to him and like have this kind of uh, exit interview yeah. with him. And he, he would guilt trip the fuck out of him, basically like saying, if you leave, you're skipping out on, on salvation. So no, I mean, I, I don't think they weren't truly there of their own free will. Yeah, it's so, almost like brainwashing them. Yeah, so it's yeah. not like he had a gun to them and was going to shoot them if they tried to escape. But it was more he was they were completely under his control. Right. You know. So they thought they were making up their own decision, but he was just manipulating yeah. them. I think. That, I think that's, I think that's right. Yeah. The negotiators' log shows that when the tape was reviewed, there was concern that the tapes released to the media would gain sympathy for Koresh and the Branch Davidians. Uh, videos also showed twenty-three children inside the compound and uh, child care professionals on the outside prepared to take those children as well as the previous 19 that were released. This whole thing is just fucking PR, man. Yeah. yeah. Mm. As the siege continued, Koresh negotiated more time, allegedly so that he could write the seven seals, which he said he needed to complete before he surrendered. His conversations were filled with biblical readings, alienated the federal negotiators who treated it like it was a hostage crisis, and, but just among themselves, the negotiation teams took calling these these diatribes by David Crush quote, Bible babble. <laughs> Say that 15 times fast. That's my new podcast I'm going to be rolling out pretty soon, Bible babble. Bible babble with Dave. <laughs> well, and if you ever listen, it's just... like, you can find some of those tapes online, and he, he does. He just rambles on and on about this, this Bible shit and all this prophecy oh, and yeah. stuff. He's crazy. I mean, after a while, the FBI negotiators, you got to imagine those guys were getting really frustrated. Like, shut the fuck up. Of course up they were. Just come out, you know? Yeah. Hi, this is your pal Dave. Welcome to Bible Babble. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a big hit, guys. Julie, down in, the, down in the Bible Belt, you're on the air. <laughs> Today we're going to dissect Psalms 34. <laughs> Dear Dave, does the Lord like me to take it in the pooper? Well, Julie... <laughs> Thanks for asking. <laughs> he does not. You are going to hell. <laughs> Bible During babble siege. with your pal Dave. It's the name of the show. <laughs> your pal Dave. All right. Anyway, I might have to do this. And then it's a really good and, idea. But it's got to be. It's got to be. Uh, I want bourbon, Dave. So you just slur through the whole thing. That sounds great. Welcome to Bible babble, Dave. Be just as coherent as uh, most uh, Bible <laughs> preachers. Sure. <laughs> There's two factions that had developed with an FBI. One believing that negotiations was going to be the the way to get this over and done with, and the other force. And it grew to the point where tactical and the negotiators were barely even communicating, even talking to each other at all. Like some, the one documentary I watched said, like some of these guys, they wouldn't even look at each other. Oh, that's probably good. Have the whole uh, FBI just not on the same page. That's not great, man, to bring a peaceful situation to an end here. No. And the one got one of the negotiators negotiators was on that documentary and he was saying that they would go to the to the porta potties, you know, during the day and tactical guys wrote shitty stuff about them on the door so they would purposely see them and stuff. Like it was get it started getting like really ugly. Was this high school? I was gonna say, like you're in high school and you're writing. Fuck man. Good God. You always think of the FBI as like, you know, on a on a 
not necessarily on a pedestal, but like, you know, with a certain degree of respect and then you hear stuff like that. Right. I mean, that's just nonsense. Increasingly aggressive techniques were used to try and force the Branch Davidians out. For example, sleep deprivation of the Branch Davidians by means of high-powered lights and all-night broadcasts of recordings of jet planes, pop music, chanting, and the screams of rabbits being slaughtered. I mean, who recorded the sound of rabbits being slaughtered? Or, or Ian, are we talking in code here? Like that's Britney Spears music, but there <laughs> people think it's rabbits being slaughtered. There's no torture of that. People they'd be <laughs> loving it. It was Britney music. Yeah, I, I was. I did some digging. I found an example online of CIA sound torture techniques. So like that. Mm. we're gonna play it, but uh, just word of the wise, you might want to turn your headphones down a little bit because this yeah. is a one louder. disturbing and two, it might yeah. be a little loud and blow your he- headphones out. Here you go. So that blasting all night long. Yeah. It's not great. Well, and it, I mean, that was really controversial because that's that's not a, a sanctioned thing that the FBI is allowed to do to people in, in these type of situations. Yeah. And there's little kids and in this house that are just trying to like sleep. Like the press conferences and stuff, like the media would ask the guy, the, the site commander, like, hey, what's going on over there? Because we see all these bright lights, all these loud stuff. Like, you guys are using straight up like torture techniques, mm-hmm. and they're like, oh, "No, we're not. We can't speak to that. We're not doing that." Damn. It's like, dude, you're you were you are like straight up lying to people right now because people yeah, can like, right. park a couple miles away and see it, you know. But they can't get close enough to actually prove it. So, right, what's the risk there? A lot of times in the, in movies and whatnot, they show you know like CA black sites where they're using that same kind of torture. And they play like, you know, industrial death metal. I'm like, that's pretty good music. That's pretty good, man. It's not really torturous. <laughs> when I was found that sample, one of the things that I saw was a video on, on some of those techniques. And one of them was they put people in a really uncomfortable box where like it'll make your legs cramp up and they'll just blast the sounds of babies crying because it stresses. It just like naturally stresses people sure. out, you know? Yeah, they That's do awful. some pretty That's intense terrible. shit, man. That is awful. Outside the compound, tanks obtained from the U.S. Army began patrolling. The tanks were used to destroy perimeter fencing, outbuildings, and crush cars belonging to the Branch Davidians. Tactical even went as far as to have the tanks repeatedly drive over the grave of Branch Davidian Peter Gent, despite protests from negotiators to stop. It's, not, it's unnecessary. They're instigating now. Yeah, I don't love that. What's the thing, and I and we'll talk about it later. But like they brought in, um, they brought in Rick Ross, who's I've, I've referenced him a bunch for cult stuff. He's a cult expert. Like they interviewed him on how to deal with this, and like his opinion, what he said, and I think it's really, tr- I think it's fully accurate. Is that the more you do that kind of stuff to them, the more they're gonna double down on it. It's just proving what they've been teaching all along. Meaning, like the more. That the FBI does stuff like that to like instigate, the more the Branch Davidians are going to double down on their own beliefs and not wanting to leave. 
because they right. think that they're you know this is a test from God or something. Yeah, look, I was right. I've been telling you that they would come for us. Yeah. Look, it's coming true. Just tactically, even it doesn't and, make sense. Well, and that goes back to the cults. They always have to have that enemy, right? You know, yeah. there's always someone sure. who's coming to get them, and that's the bad guy and the evil. And it goes back to the militarization of you know the police and everyone else, like we talked about last week. Oh, I must have been real fucked up for that part. <laughs> <laughs> when no, is that not the case? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and the other thing I know that 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 I read too through interviews because they they didn't just interview. Rick Ross, he also interviewed a bunch of other psychologists and stuff like that. And a bunch of them said Koresh was brutally bullied his whole life. And this is then doing this stuff to him is just going to make it even, it's going to make him stand his ground even more. You know, that makes sense. Sure. Two of the three water storage tanks on the roof of the main building had been damaged during the initial ATF raid. Eventually, the FBI cut all power and water to the compound, forcing those inside to survive on rainwater and stockpiled military rations. Going hard. Yeah. Criticism was later expressed by attorney Jack Zimmerman at the tactic of using sleep and peace disrupting sound against the Branch Davidians, saying, quote, The point was this. They were trying to have sleep disturbance, and they were trying to take someone that they viewed as unstable to start with, and they were trying to drive him crazy. And they got mad because he does something that they think is irrational. There's some truth to that, for sure. But then again, what... They have to do something. So what do they do? I'm, I mean, I'm just, I'm kind of against torture, I think, just in general. Yeah. But, but they can't just sit there forever. Well, but the negotiators were still working. Like, it's not like they weren't doing anything. This was just the tactical side trying to be aggressive and flex some muscle, well, I think. Well, it's true, but they also view it, you have to view it through the lens of the negotiators having failed the first time when they came yeah. to an agreement and he didn't come out. Now we're how many days later? Right. right. And, and, and I everyone's just stuck out there in the middle of Texas. I don't want to be unfair to the FBI either. Like, they still have a job to get done. And. You know, they don't know for sure what's going on. Remember, like yeah. we talked about last week, they were, you know, under the impression there might be child abuse going on. So I understand that. I'm still not necessarily for the whole torture yeah. part, but right. They, they do have to do something. I think the biggest issue in this in this story with the FBI is maybe not exactly what they do as far as like trying to irritate them to get them to come out or something. I don't know. Like, I don't agree with it, but I think the biggest issue is the fact that they none of them would talk to each other. There was like, there's no communication. So negotiators feel like they're getting somewhere. Yeah. And then the next day they start driving tanks all over everything and it ruins whatever the negotiators just did. There's no coherent plan. I I absolutely think that's a valid uh, criticism. And from the negotiator standpoint, it's hard to build trust with the, with the Davidians when the negotiators are saying one thing and then they're getting, you know, assaulted by the the tactical team. Yeah. And if you're the Branch Davidians, you don't trust any of them because you have one side telling you one thing and then other people doing other things. And why would you? Right. Despite the increasingly aggressive tactics, Koresh ordered a group of followers to leave. Eleven people left and were arrested as material witnesses, with one person being charged with conspiracy to murder. The children's willingness to stay with Koresh initially disturbed the negotiators, but they later found that the children were aware that the earlier group of children who had left with some women were immediately separated and the women were arrested. So the kids were like, you know, no, we're not leaving because we're going to be separated. You know, you're just going to take us to like a Mm -hmm. foster home type situation. During the siege, a number of scholars who studied apocalyptic beliefs in religious groups attempted to persuade the FBI that the siege tactics being used by the government agents would only reinforce the impression within the Branch Davidians that they were part of a biblical end times confrontation that had a cosmic significance. I think that's exactly right. 
and they also believe that this would likely increase the chances of a violent and deadly outcome. The religious scholars pointed out that the beliefs of the group may have appeared to be extreme, but to the Branch Davidians, their religious beliefs were deeply meaningful and they were willing to die for them. Koresh's discussions with the negotiating team became increasingly difficult. He proclaimed that he was the second coming of Christ and had been commanded by his father in heaven to remain in the compound. <laughs> like you, you start to feel sorry for these guys, but then how do you deal with someone like that? I mean, what are you supposed to do? It was probably just nonsense after nonsense when they try to negotiate with him. Like, what do you do? And he just keeps asking for more time and yeah. more ridiculous. And I'm requests. talking to God. And I mean, right. At some point, you got to do something. I agree fully. I mean, you can't let him sit there forever. As, I mean, as much as we're harping on the FBI for not being a you know cohesive unit and working together and doing fucked up stuff, Koresh still is just jacking around with everybody and yeah, you know, not taking seriously the threats that the the HRT is making. It's almost like he wants them to kill, you know, to right. come in or challenge is challenging them. He to. wants to go out in a, in a blaze of glory kind of guy, be a martyr. Yeah. One week prior to the April nineteenth assault, FBI planners considered using snipers to kill David Koresh and possibly other key Branch Davidians. That would have been my plan. I think that might have been the better plan. 100%. If Not even other key Branch Davidians. I think if you just killed Koresh, that would that would end it. Put one in his head. I tell you, by the end of that movie, I fucking hated that guy. Koresh? I wanted to strangle and kill him myself. Awful. It, he's He was super difficult. to. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's an asshole. In, like the, in the, the negotiation tapes that they that they use in the show, like the quotes and stuff, are pretty much word for word from actual negotiation tapes. So, I mean, that's how he was, man. He was just would not like nonsensical mm-hmm. religious talk, just would be super aggressive and not want to work with people. Another thing too, and this doesn't necessarily speak to him being obnoxious, but we talked, we mentioned it from last time. He was in that initial fire gunfight. He was injured. So he's got a pretty yeah. bad stomach wound, you know, throughout all of this that, you know, which doesn't help his mental state. Clearly right. he's losing blood. He's in a lot of pain. He's yeah. I mean, it's just like any other, even, you know, in regular everyday life, arguing with, you know, religious nuts it doesn't ever go anywhere. You can't ever have a coherent conversation because it's nonsense. More next week on Babble Bible with <laughs> Bourbon Bible Dave. Babble. Bible Babble with Bourbon Dave. You're with your pal Dave. You think Moses part of the Red Sea? <laughs> <laughs> the fuck out of here. Now we all have our spinoff shows. See? Promised Land, Cucks Across America, and Bible Babble. I'll do Bible Babble. I will, I will not do Cucks Across America. <laughs> the FBI also started to voice concern that the Branch Davidians might commit mass suicide, as had happened in 1978 at Jonestown. Jonestown never heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> well, convenient for you, Dave. There's three parts available in the archives. <laughs> Thanks for telling me. I never knew. <laughs> Koresh had repeatedly denied any plans for a mass suicide when confronted by negotiators during the standoff, and members leaving the compound said that they had not seen any such preparation. Like That was something that was never talked about, at least in front of them. Fair enough. Becoming more frustrated with negotiators, Tactical went to newly appointed U.S. Attorney General Janet Reno, who approved recommendations by Tactical to carry out an assault. After being told that the conditions were deteriorating and that children were being abused in the compound. Now, keep in mind, there was never any evidence of child abuse happening at Mount Carmel. 
the FBI director publicly said that Janet Reno was never told that child abuse was happening. However, FBI memos that came out later state that she in fact was, but the agent who said that wasn't named in the memo. And it's still unclear to this day who t- which agent told her that to push this along. So, But Janet Reno claims she was told yeah. that there was right. child abuse. It's a pretty big detail here Yeah, in, in her decision making, right? I would imagine so. I mean, that was the thing that got her to agree with yeah. saying that there was child abuse happening. Mm. Janet Reno made the FBI's case to President Clinton, recalling the April 19, 1985 covenant sword in the arm of the Lord siege in Arkansas, which ended without loss of life by a blockade without a deadline. So President Clinton suggested similar tactics be used against the Branch Davidians. Mm. And we talked about the sword, the arm, the Lord and all that shit. We talked about them and Ruby Ridge. They're, they're the ones that were really pushing that Christian identity bullshit. Nazis. Yeah. Thumbs down on Nazis. <laughs> it's it's Necronomapod's official stance. Thumbs down on Nazis. Janet, Janet, I just want to go get a blowjob uh, in the Oval <laughs> Office. You do it. Everything's right. I'm going to smoke a cigar, get a Hummer, blow a load on the dress. Oh, is the nineties character, Bill Clinton, Dave. <laughs> there it is. Uh, it's it's Mr. President to you, Pally. Ian, I just want to get a Hummer. <laughs> I don't care about Waco. Janet Reno countered that the FBI hostage rescue team was tired of waiting, and that the standoff was costing million do- millions of dollars per week. The Branch Davidians could hold out way longer than the CSAL could, and that the chances of child sexual abuse and mass suicide were imminent. President Clinton later recounted, quote, Finally, I told her if she thought it was the right thing to do, she could go ahead. It's her call. Over the next several months, Janet Reno's reasoning for approving the final gas attack varied with her initial claim that the FBI tactical team had told her that Koresh was sexually abusing children and beating babies to her claim that Linda Thompson's unorganized militia of the United States was on its way to Waco to, quote, either help Koresh or attack him. So she was giving various reasons as to why she approved the final right. gas attack. Well, afterward, you know, After post-attack, cover right. your ass mode, right? Yeah. Yeah. I watched an interview with her around this time and and she does say she was like, yeah, one of those guys told me that uh that he was beating babies and, you know, sexually abusing children. Yeah. And uh there you go. she was like, but I can't remember what agent told me that. And then mm. like I said the FBI director came back and was like, yeah, she's full of shit, but then memos said like, yeah, this is what we told her. <laughs> so unbelievable. I mean, she just died a uh, couple months ago, I think. Janet Reno. Did she? Yeah. Yep. I don't know if I remember Not that. Not too long ago. Hmm. He and Jibber, so, uh, Jibber shove a cigar up an uh, intern's cooter. <laughs> Smoke it afterwards. Dave, she died in 2016. No. Janet Reno died November 7th, 2016. Oh. God damn, she was six foot two. Was she really? It was that long ago? Why do I think it was recently? Huh. Time flies when you're having fun uh, doing a podcast. <laughs> Hey, and do you have any uh, any uh, interns at that Necronomapod show? You get your put your PP in. <laughs> it's great, fucking interns, love it. <laughs> I did not have sex with that Necronomapod patron. <laughs> oh boy! In Discord last night, I did not. <laughs> oh boy! 
Ian, get us back on track quick. <laughs> Dave's going off the rails with Clinton here. <laughs> so with with the go-ahead from, from Janet Reno, let's get into uh, to the final assault on April 19th, 1993. So this was day 51, right? Right, this yeah. is on day 51. Yeah. I mean, that's a long fucking time. Oh, yeah, and it, uh, costing a million dollars a week? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know about the cost, but 51 days. That's I mean, taxpayer I, money, bro. It is, but that, you know. An endless amount of taxpayer money. I'm not paying to keep David Koresh alive. But at some point, it's not. But just to make the the, the point that it wasn't on day three that they did this. No, they waited it was a long 51 time. Fifty one days. They waited a while, and he was, you know, backing out on deals he had made with them, sure. and was uh, jacking them around with wanting yeah. extensions and his seven sins and Bible babble. I mean, and say all what that. you will, but that's that's a little patience, I believe. You can look at it and say they were too generous. It's a long time. They were too generous. It's a long time. Them. Sure, you could. If there wasn't yeah, so I mean, much incompetence on the FBI side, they would absolutely have a case for what was done. But then you just no. see so many issues and infighting and, and little uh, just BS that, you know, hard, it makes it hard to stand with the, the feds on this one, too. Yeah. Ian, did you ever smoke a cigar soaked in vaginal juice? It's delightful. <laughs> was that a That's thing a with him? Thing Cigars? Did, man. With. Yeah, putting yeah. them in women. Yeah. I didn't know that. I wish I didn't learn that. Now you know. That, that's what he did with Monica. Yeah. Right? yeah. I listened to an entire podcast on that, and that was not mentioned once. Yeah. I didn't know that. I again. I wish I had. You're like a presidential that. scholar too. I'm sorry. I don't dive into their fetishes. <laughs> I like a that's scar a and a cooter. <laughs> Gives it a nice aroma. Oh, good God. <laughs> Can we be done now? I want to go home. <laughs> Show's over. <laughs> so let's get in. Let's get into the timeline of this. 5:50 a.m. Agents call the Branch Davidian compound to warn they are about to begin tank activity and advise residents to quote take cover. Agents say the Branch Davidian, who answered the phone, did not reply, but instead threw the phone and phone line out of the front door. And that's Steve Snyder. That was uh, David uh, Crush's right hand man. Yeah. That was a good scene in the movie. He just picks that old phone up and chucks it out the front door. I, yeah, um, not the brightest. I was hoping he was going to be the savior of the group. And yeah, yeah. Stand up to Koresh, and he didn't. He also was a cuck. He was a cuck? It's one of your uh, people on your show, Mike. Well, no. I'm designing he a, won't be on that show. I'm designing a new uh, shirt for your show. Did I tell you that? <laughs> you did. <laughs> you have a country Mike in the middle, cucks across America, <laughs> and the, the, the tagline's going to be, your wife is his life. It's gonna be a big seller. <laughs> but it, um, but it's not just wives though. Like I, I come do the guys if you want to find out if the woman's a cuck. We might have to. Hmm. I I might have to rewrite it. Yeah. Your spouse is his. I got nothing we'll right workshop now. It. I'll work we'll on workshop. It. I'll work on it. I'll work on it. We'll workshop. Yeah, we'll figure it out. <laughs> five minutes later, at five fifty-five a.m., the FBI hostage rescue team deployed two tanks to the buildings. Tank one went to the left of the buildings and tank two to the right six o'clock a.m fbi surveillance tapes from devices planted in the wall of the building record a man inside the compound saying quote everybody up let's start to pray then quote pablo have you poured it yet quote huh have you poured it yet in the hallway things are poured right and at the same time tank one receives orders to spray two bottles of cs tear gas into the left corner of the building is this audio about them pouring gasoline? Is that like is that what they're insinuating with that audio? 
Yeah, the, that's them. That's the FBI starting to make the case that mm. they poured gas on purpose to start yeah. the fire. Could have just been coffee, and it was pretty fucking early in the morning. <laughs> Get ready for that. They wanted coffee with their, prayer, with their prayers. 6.05 a.m., a tank with a ramen delivery device pumped gas into the building with pressurized air rips into the front wall just left of the door, leaving a hole that was uh, 8 by 10. Agents claim the holes allowed insertion of the gas as well as provided a means of escape for Branch Davidian members. Agents see shots from the inside the compound directed at the tanks. So people are going to see these tanks bursting the wall and think, oh, I'm going to run towards that to get out. Yeah, right. They're not terrified or anything. Yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> this thing is bulldozing the wall down. 6.10 a.m., FBI surveillance tapes record, quote, don't pour it all out, we might need some later, and, quote, throw the tear gas back out. FBI negotiator Byron Sage is recorded saying, quote, it is time for people to come out. Surveillance tapes also recorded a man saying, quote, what? And then, quote, no way. Mm. 6.12 a.m., FBI surveillance tapes record Branch Davidian saying, quote, they're going to kill us. And then, quote, they don't want to kill us. It sounds like chaos already. Yeah. yeah. 100% chaos. 6.31 a.m., the entire building is gassed. 6.47 a.m., the FBI hostage rescue team fires plastic, non-incendiary tear gas rounds through the windows of the compound. 7.23 a.m., FBI surveillance tapes record a male branch division saying, quote, the fuel has to go all around to get started. Then a second male says, quote, well, there are two cans here if that's poured soon. Are these surveillance tapes public now? Like, have, can you hear this stuff or is this just their account? Yeah, so, you can find it on YouTube. So it's not made up. Like, it's confirmed this was said. These these things were said. They just don't well, necessarily know it with regards to what. You don't know exactly what. And we're going to get into, like, the court case here in a bit. Because the jury that listened to the tapes, some of it, it was kind of almost like a, like a JonBenet Ramsey kind of thing with the 911 tapes where they were, not all of the jury was convinced that they were hearing what they were told they were supposed gotcha. to be hearing. 7.30 a.m., Tank 1 is redeployed, breaching the building and inserting tear gas. Branch Davidians fire shots at Tank 1. So they don't show that in the show. They make it seem like they're all freaking out and trying to get away from this stuff while mm. the FBI is just, like, going hard on with the tanks. They were firing. Back, they were firing. Instead of leaving, they were shooting at the tanks. Which is expected, I suppose. I don't know if that's the right course yeah, but of action. You gotta think I mean, it's over at that point, right? Like your, your tanks are coming through your house. Like, get on the run outside and get on the ground. I don't know. It's just hard to There's put yourself in that situation. Do. Yeah, I don't, I don't, yeah. I don't know what you do. Are you worried about just getting fucking blown away running out the front door? I don't know. Or I mean, like, you truly think you're the good guys and they're the bad guys, so you're you're fighting back. Yeah, you're not gonna I give mean, in. You're not gonna go down without a fight. I guess you're brainwashed to think this is God's test yeah. and. 7.48 a.m. on FBI tapes of agents recorded during the siege, an FBI hostage rescue team agent requests permission to fire military-style tear gas shells to break through an underground concrete bunker. He received permission and fired two shells. All right, so that's escalation. Concrete penetrating military shells. Military-style yeah. tear gas. 7.58 a.m., Tank 2, with a battering ram, rips a hole into the second floor of the compound. Minutes later, another hole is punched into the rear of one of the buildings of the compound. The vehicles then withdraw. 8.08 a.m., three pyrotechnic military tear gas rounds are shot at the concrete construction pit. Away and downwind from the main quarters, trying to penetrate the structure, but they bounced off. 
An agent in Tank 1 reports that one shell bounced off the bunker and did not penetrate. Kind of like freshman Mike in college did not penetrate. (laughs) (laughs) That's a bold-faced lie. (laughs) Get in, get out, get to sleep. That was my motto in college. (laughs) Jesus. Oh, man, I had to get some rest. I had to get some rest. You hit intramural uh, intramural badminton in the morning, right? Of course. Can't stay a banging hose all night. Yeah, I had to win, man. <laughs> Wanted that t-shirt. <laughs> intramural champs 2004, woo! 8.24 a.m., the audio portion of FBI videotape ends at the request of the pilot. What does that mean? So, uh, they cut they the, audio, they cut the video feed? What were they doing after that? What happened at 8.25 a.m.? Uh... I don't know. Yeah. Mm. Nobody knows, but they cut, they cut everything at 824 AM. Interesting. Nine o'clock AM communications come back on the branch of Davidians put out a banner, which reads quote, we want our phone fixed. Well, you threw it out the front door, motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. What are you going to do? Yeah. Hey, also, Steve, it's, you shouldn't have whipped that out the front yeah, door. Bud. Steve. Like, you know, they're not going to fix your phone. This is literally your chance to get one message out there, yeah. and you want your phone fixed. We're coming out waving white flags. Don't kill us. Yeah. That should have been the banner. <laughs> well, should have just done that and not wasted time even making the banner. You know what the problem is here, Steve? Steve could have, I think, ended all this, but he was all fucked up because David was banging his wife. That's what I was saying before. Yeah. Like, there was a, he was the second guy. If anyone could yeah. rationalize things with Koresh or just be the man and stand up and get people out, it was going to be him. He should have put one in Koresh's head and then brought everyone else out. But he was so loyal to him. Yeah. He was a cuck. He was a cuck. And it didn't seem like he loved being a cuck either. No. Well, as portrayed in the movie, but no. I'm sure he didn't in real life either, I would assume. Which then gets you to the conversation I had with our friend Ed from Pod Van Dam on that bonus show of, is it cuck if you don't enjoy it? Do you have to enjoy it to be a cuck mm. and like a cuckold? Because it's part of like the fetish, the sexual fetish. Because Ed maintains if you don't enjoy it, then it's, you're not a cuck. It's just then like someone's cheating on you. Something to think about, people. We'll cover that, that more sure, in depth on sure. Cucks Across America with Mike. I think I got, I got a new tagline. He's been thinking I, I worked about it, it out of my head while we're talking. <laughs> Cucks across America. In your house. Not, shit, I lost it. All right, we're going to cut this. Give me one second. In your spouse. <laughs> in your house. On your spouse. Sounds like a doctor's no, here, no, here it is. <laughs> Cucks across America. On your spouse with sperm hill douse. <laughs> Boom. Nailed it. <laughs> 9.13 a.m. Tank 1 breaks through the front door to deliver more gas. Like, because the generator was out and they wanted to get their power back up? Not, not, not that I kind of guess. Yeah. I, don't think so. I don't think so. I thought they called and said, hey, our generator's out. We're trying to watch uh, Housewives of Beverly Hills. Can you get us some more gas? 9.20 a.m. FBI surveillance records a meeting between several unidentified males. Male one, quote, they got two cans of Coleman fuel down there, huh? Male two, empty. Male three, all of it? Mail two again, nothing left. So mm. it's still alluding to that they're pouring gas or some type of fuel to to start a fire. A lot here. of evidence towards it at this point. Yeah, if we're believing these transcripts. 10 a.m. A man is seen waving a white flag on the southeast side of the compound. He is advised over loudspeakers that if he is surrendering, he should come out. He does not. At the time, a man believed to be Steve Snyder 
comes out from the remains of the front door to, to retrieve the phone and phone line. <laughs> there we go. Like, Whoops. Back in business. I shouldn't have done that. Yeah. Might have been a bit hasty in throwing the phone out the front door. <laughs> 11.30 a.m. Tank 2 has mechanical difficulties, which was a damaged tread. Its replacement breaches through the backside of the compound. 11.17 a.m. through 12.04 p.m. According to the government, a series of remarks such as, quote, I want a fire, quote, keep that fire going, and, quote, do you think I could light this soon, indicate that the Branch Davidians have started setting fire to the complex around 11.30 a.m. And that'll be key later on when we talk mm. about, because there's a big debate over who started the fire of the compound, right? That the Davidians blame the government, yeah. then the government blames the Davidians, so that's why, you know, the government released all of this alleged information that would indicate that the Davidians did it. 11.43 a.m., another gas insertion takes place with Tank 2's replacement moving well into the building on the right rear side to reach the concrete interior room where the FBI hostage rescue team believed the Branch Davidians were hiding to try to avoid the gas. That just doesn't sound safe to me at all. Like Plowing through the tank? A ta yeah. yeah like, I agree. Like, like, couldn't you, like, knock walls over on people and kill them? Like, of course. It doesn't sound safe at all. And they know there's kids there. It's not like it's, you know... Oh, we right. didn't know there were kids. They know there's like 30 kids in this fucking building. Yeah, right. It just doesn't like, like I could see, I guess, like, like shooting shit through the windows, like a bunch of gas, mm -hmm. you know, but like actually ramming yeah. tanks through the building. Yeah. It just seems really aggressive. 11.45 a.m. The wall on the right rear side of the building collapses. 12.03 p.m. An armored vehicle turret knocks away the first floor corner of the right side of the building. 12.07 p.m., the first visible flames appear in two spots in the front of the building, first on the left of the front door on the second floor, a wisp of smoke and then a small flicker of a flame. Then a short time later, on the far right of the front of the building and at a third spot on the backside, an FBI hostage rescue team agent reported seeing a Branch Davidian member igniting a fire in the front door area. Interesting. We've seen that video. I mean, it was on the news thousands of times of the fire igniting there in that corner with the tank, right? I haven't seen that, but... Mm. It's still unclear as to how it started, though. Yeah, I mean... Right? It's 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 highly debated, and I, I feel like um, people's opinions on this yeah. story, there's no, there's no wiggle room. Either you believe they said it, or you believe the yeah. FBI caused it. 12.09 p.m., Ruth Riddle exits with a floppy disk in her jacket containing a manuscript for Koresh's manuscript of the Seven Seals. And a third fire is detected on the first floor. Oh, well, thank God that manuscript got out. Yeah. The yeah, world is such a better place now that that manuscript escaped. And, and that was a big part of the, at least in the movie, that he was uh, stalling for time to, to finish his, his manuscript on the Seven Seals stuff. Yeah. How yeah, accurate was. that was, but well, they, they gave him this. They gave him his week, and he was fucking around. Instead, he still needed more time, and they're like, "No, that's it. Yeah, time's done. up. It's fifty-one days, pal." Like, and I get that the time's up, but then you can't just go make up shit and say that there's kids being abused to to be more aggressive. I, and what agree, gonna sure. Do. But yeah, and you know what? The other thing about that whole Seven Seals writing, why can't, why couldn't God just tell him about his uh, Seven Seals while he was sitting in jail? Right? Because God didn't want him. I don't, to, I don't God disagree. God didn't want him to go to jail. Ian wanted to stay in that house and bang people's wives. <laughs> also true. I just watched that video. That's pretty crazy. The fire. Oh yeah. Yeah. It almost looks like it starts from inside the window and then comes out. 
It kind of does. Yeah. Hmm. 12.10 p.m., flames spread quickly through the building, fanned by high winds. The building starts to burn very quickly. 12.12 p.m., an emergency call is placed regarding the fire. Two Waco Fire Department trucks are dispatched. Shortly after, the Bellmead Fire Department dispatches two trucks. 12.20 p.m., Waco Fire Trucks arrive at the checkpoint where they are halted, not being allowed to pass until 12.37 p.m. Jeez. That's odd. Was there a reason for that? I mean, that's 15 Uh, minutes. They had to sit there. That was an active firefight, I mean, right? Were they still shooting at this time? Yeah, I think the reasoning was they didn't want any firefighters to get uh, to get themselves shot and killed. So they were still shooting at this time. Okay, that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, they won't I let guess. you through if it's yeah. gunfire. And we're, I mean, we'll get into this in a bit. Uh, the uh, high amount of criticism that the FBI got for not even not having any type of plan in place for a fire. See, the thing that you learn later with this is this: these gas canisters they use for this have ignited fires countless times in the past. So it's not right. like. It wasn't a known risk because it's happened over and over again, and they did not prepare for that risk. Which then doesn't help any of the government's arguments when no. they're trying to say that, oh, it was the Davidians. They've used this a lot of times in the past, and it started fires again and again and again. So, of course, they should have been prepared for a fire to start. 12.25 p.m., there is a loud explosion on the left side of the compound. One object hurls into the air, bounces off the top of a bus, and lands on the grass. 12.30 p.m., Part of the roof collapses. Around this time, there are several further explosions, and witnesses report the sound of gunfire attributed by the FBI hostage team to live ammunition cooking off throughout the buildings due, due to the fire. Mm. And that's, I think that's, that's possible. That's one of the, yeah, and I think that's why they didn't want the firefighters in there either, because now you got all these bullets burning and the shit's just yeah, going off. Yeah, that's, that's true. 12.43 p.m., according to fire department logs, Fire trucks arrive at the compound. 12.55 p.m., fire begins to burn out. The entire compound is leveled. 1.45 p.m., almost eight hours after the siege started, law enforcement sources state that David Koresh has been confirmed dead. We'll be right back. Is there something that interferes with your happiness? Something preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment that's totally convenient. At BetterHelp, you can get help on your own time at your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. They offer licensed professional counselors who are specialized in depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, and self-esteem. Anything you share with your BetterHelp counselor is kept completely confidential. If you're not happy with your counselor for any reason, you can request a new one at any time for no additional charge. BetterHelp offers 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states and also has services available worldwide. Sign up is simple, and you can start communicating in under 24 hours. Financial aid is also available for those who qualify. And remember, BetterHelp is secure, convenient, and professional. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Necronomapod listeners get 10% off your first month with discount code NECRO. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com NECRO. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com NECRO. What kind of beer are you drinking tonight, Mike? <laughs> I am drinking a Sugar Plum Fairy Sparkling Ale from Tradition Brewing Company in Virginia. 
Shout out to listener and patron Aaron. Thank you very much. Um, it's not bad. It's uh, for being a plum sparkling ale. I wasn't sure what to think about it, but it is. Uh, it's all right. Hmm. I also had uh, a Mexican lager that they make uh, last night. That was fantastic. More on that on a, a previous bonus episode available at patreon.com slash Necronomapod. But yeah, shout out to Aaron. Thank you very much. The, uh, the Sugar Plum Fairy Sparkling Ale from Tradition Brewing Company. Not bad at all. Good promo. I like it. That's what I do. All right, Ian, where are we so at with Waco? Only nine people left the building during the fire. The remaining Branch Davidians, including the children, were either buried alive by rubble, suffocated, or shot. According to the FBI, Steve Snyder, Koresh's top aide, shot and killed Koresh and then shot himself. Uh, and, and it was in the show. It, it was like the, at, depicted pretty intense. Yeah, and it was at the, the request of Koresh. Like he didn't kill Koresh. Koresh said, "Here, shoot me." Yeah. Well, in a dramatization, but who knows? You don't know that. Yeah, we don't know that. That's no one true, knows too. that. I' pretty confident that he did not. Because if he would have killed them, then why wouldn't he have just come out? Why wouldn't he have been the hero then and gotten everyone out of the house? I, you just don't know. I mean, maybe he should, he's like, "Oh, you like to fuck my wife," and he put one in his head. Like, you don't know the scenario of how this went down. We don't, but I will confidently say that Koresh wanted to be killed. Okay. It's depicted pretty intense in the show. It is, sure. But that's all dramatization. You don't know what happened in that fucking house when all this was going on. I just mean if he's going to kill him, then why not go ahead and be the fool hero and then get everybody out of the house? He didn't do any of that. He killed Koresh and then killed himself and, you know, trying to be martyrs. Sure. In all, 76 people died. A large concentration of bodies, weapons, and ammunition was found in the, quote, bunker room. The Texas Rangers arson investigator report assumes that many of the occupants were either denied escape from within or refused to leave until escape was not an option. Mm. Denied by people in the compound or by physical obstructions? I guess by... Yeah, I, I don't probably, know. Because they caved all those walls down when the tanks went through. I, I mean, as depicted in that movie, they couldn't get out. It just wasn't physically possible yeah i mean and you can watch like the the real raid the video that's out there of it the the final assault i mean yeah the, I mean, the full-blown tanks just driving through you know that it's knocking walls and other yeah. items down so who's to say that they didn't like just close off a whole area not knowing it and people couldn't get out of right they're just trapped in something. there yeah. i think that's 100 percent possible sure it also mentions that structural debris from from the breaching operations on the west end of the building could have blocked a possible escape route through the tunnel system. An independent investigation by two experts from the University of Maryland's Department of Fire Protection Engineering concluded that the compound residents had sufficient time to escape the fire if they so desired. Mm. Autopsies of the dead revealed that some women and children found beneath the fallen concrete wall of the storage room died from skull injuries. Ugh. Autopsy photographs of other children frozen in what appeared to be like spasmic death poses are consistent with cyanide poisoning, one of the results produced by burning CS gas. But I thought the whole point of this was that it was non-lethal gas. It's not exactly yeah, but if it true. Catches, but when it catches fire, then mm, it, it, it like yeah. sparks a chemical reaction that creates like cyanide type, like if like yeah. similar things sure. to cyanide if you inhale it. So it's like it's it's a it's a weird gray area with, C, with yeah. CS gas where it's like okay it's not lethal but if it catches on fire then everybody's then it, fucked yeah then it very much is lethal. which it had done numerous times in the past right yeah but then if you US prep th- for that Dave if you're the FBI and you prep for that then you can't claim ignorance 
or put the blame on them. Also and say true. You didn't know. If also you, true. If you if you're prepared to put out fires, then you're admitting that you know fire could start. Well, I think that's right. Sure. But you can't deny that you have historical data that, that, that this has happened previously. Yeah, I'm not saying it's that. It's there. I'm just saying. It's part of the record. Autopsy records also yeah. indicate that at least 20 Branch Davidians were shot, including Koresh, as well as five children under the age of 14. Three-year-old Dalen Gent was stabbed in the chest. That's not pleasant. Damn. The medical examiner who performed the autopsies believed that these deaths were mercy killings by the Branch Davidians trapped in the fire with no escape. The expert retained by the U.S. Office of Special Counsel also concluded that these were all mercy killings after there was no way to escape the building. So they just shot their own kids and stabbed them, just kind of put them out of the misery of either... And a lot of them shot, killed themselves afterwards, too. Right, yeah. yeah. I mean, they're writhing there, suffocating from cyanide poisoning. Yeah, no, it's I'm not, not saying yeah. we don't know that situation. Yeah, sure. it's, that could be understandable. I don't think I'd be yeah, able to a, stab a three-year-old. Well, yeah, yeah. That's all you had on I you if you put, didn't have a gun, I, I guess. Can't, yeah, I right. Know. I can't put myself in that situation, but I just that's tough to think about. Yeah. Yeah, so that's what that was one thing about the show where it's not just like peaceful. Like they, uh, yeah, they yeah, showed right. uh, David Thibodeau's wife falling asleep with the baby. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think that's what happened. The events at Mount Carmel spurred both criminal prosecution and civil litigation. On August 3rd, 1993, a federal grand jury returned the superseding 10-count indictment against 12 of the surviving Branch Davidians. The grand jury charged, among other things, that the Branch Davidians had conspired to and aided and abetted in the murder of federal officers and had unlawfully possessed and used various firearms. The government dismissed the charges against one of the 12 Branch Davidians due to a plea bargain. After a jury trial lasting nearly two months, the jury acquitted four of the Branch Davidians on all charges. Additionally, the jury acquitted all of the Branch Davidians on the murder-related charges, but convicted five of them on lesser charges, including aiding and abetting the voluntary manslaughter of federal agents. Eight of the Branch Davidian survivors were convicted on firearms charges. Did anyone do serious time, though? Not not super long. I mean, yeah. I saw a few of them did more than a year. Yeah, so I guess that's a long time, but not compared that, to it's like what they could have got. Yeah. So I th- I think some of these federal juries had sympathy for what happened. I think probably so. Yeah. Critics of the ATF and FBI suggested that during the final raid, the CS gas was injected into the building by armored vehicles in an unsafe manner, which could have started the fire. While two of the three fires were started well inside the building, away from where the CS gas was pumped in, survivor David Thibodeau claimed in a 1999 interview with Reason that damage to the building allowed the gas to spread, stating, quote, They started to break the walls, break the windows down, spread the CS gas out. And I think that's a, if you want to base it off the FBI started the fire, that's a criticism is that they kept breaking the walls down and it allowed the wind to just like blow Mm. the gas everywhere and then continue to blow the fire around and stuff. That's a good point. Why didn't they wait for a a nice calm windless day to do this raid, right? (laughs) Same. They waited 51 days. What's another day? Poor planning. Further controversy involves the use of gas grenades. Attorney General Janet Reno had specifically directed that no pyrotechnic devices be used in the assault. Between 1993 and 1999, the FBI spokesman denied, even under oath, the use of any sort of pyrotechnic devices during the assault. However, pyrotechnic flight rate CS gas grenades had been found in the rubble immediately following the fire. Oh, that's weird. 
How'd they get there? <laughs> in 1999, FBI spokesmen were forced to admit that they used the grenades. However, they claimed that these devices, which dispense CS gas through an internal burning process, had been used during an early morning attempt to penetrate a covered, water-filled construction pit 40 yards away and were not fired into the building. See, stuff like mm. this is just so much... You're just never gonna get a straight answer no, out of anyone. Right. It's just not possible. You're, yeah, and you're, yeah, I, I agree. And it's like, and it makes it look really bad on them because it's like, why? It took you, you lied under oath about it back in '93, right. and then it took you six years to just finally come out and admit that yeah, we did fire them. But now you're saying no, they weren't. No, it was forty yards away. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, even like, if that's how, accurate, to believe you. Yeah, even if that's accurate, that you've already blown all your credibility. And no one's ever going to believe that. According to FBI claims, the fire started approximately three hours after the, the grenades had been fired. When the FBI's documents were turned over to Congress for an investigation in 1994, the page listing the use of pyrotechnic devices was missing. Where, where'd it go? Where's that page? <laughs> I mean, my intern page, pager, where's she at? <laughs> Got a boner and a cohiba. See, and this is the thing, and we're gonna, I'm going to talk about it at the end of this before we in, in setting it up for Oklahoma next week. But this is the kind of stuff that this kind of shit causes this distrust with people, and then it, it and it can be used to whip everybody up. Yeah, of course, absolutely. And but it's like, oh, that's that's real convenient, right? That that just that page just wasn't in there all of a sudden, right? <laughs> like, Even if it was here. a mistake, it's you know you you can never counteract that claim after that. The failure for six years to disclose the use of pyrotechnics, despite her specific directive, led Janet Reno to demand an investigation. A senior FBI official told Newsweek that as many as a hundred FBI agents had known about the use of pyrotechnics, but no one spoke up until 1999. I mean, so is this a massive cover-up? Is that what's going on? It sounds like That's it, right? It, seems it, like. it sure seems like it. I agree. That's why they were heavily pushing all that alleged audio that they picked up about the spreading of the gas with the uh, the Davidians. Yeah, it's not great. You know, an hour ago we were convinced, oh, maybe it was the Davidians just starting the fire and the gas, and then all this information slowly starts to leak out. I, I guess the, then it leads you to believe you know, if they can remove pages and do this massive cover-up, can they also adjust the audio transcripts of course they can right sure. edit it to what they want sure yeah when you yeah, lose 100%. your credibility then you, you know, question that, everything that's every, you yeah. question everything yeah exactly well and then just to make it even just turn up the the fuckery just a little bit more on may 12th less than a month after the incident texas state authorities bulldozed the site rendering further get, gathering of forensic evidence it just wasn't possible at that point who made that call I would assume weird. somebody in the FBI, somebody high up told them to go. Oh, we told them to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Like that. It's the biggest. It, it It's still the biggest like siege and whatever on in the U.S. as far as law enforcement stuff is confirmed. And you don't less than 12 months. You just go and just wipe the whole thing out. Like, no, that doesn't sound right. Not at less, all. Than, less than a month after the incident. Yeah. Oh, is that? Yeah. Yeah. Less than a month. Not even a year later. A month later. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what I'm talking about. But yeah. Like that. That's crazy. Even within a year might still be ridiculous. This isn't a month. Yeah. I. I don't. Yeah. But crazy stuff like that happens in this country. I just don't know that people have an awareness of kind of like in in 1985 in Philadelphia they had that move. Uh, 
um, like activist organization, and they dropped firebombs on a whole block in Philadelphia and just burned them all up. That's fine. Like, people insane. don't know that story. They're, like, all kinds of crazy shit like that happens all the well, time. We're here to enlighten people. We should do a, we should do a show on that. That move stuff, it was crazy. They literally just firebombed a whole block of house, of row houses in Philadelphia. Maybe after Oklahoma, we'll take a few months off of shitting on the government <laughs> before we go back and shit on them some I'm just more. saying, you know, this stuff happens, and I don't know that the general public's aware of it. You know where it doesn't happen? Canada. You know what else is in Canada? Poutine. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying. People are happy. They eat poutine. They don't do yeah. crazy stuff. And they, they, they don't have to Molson kill you. and Labatt and... Go to uh, hockey games. Yeah. I mean, what's not, and it's it's nice and cold. They don't have the fucking humidity of Florida. They have health care. They don't have Florida. Yeah, they have health care. Let's go. It's not a bad place. Necronomapod does Canada. And we, and we stay there because it's so awesome. We migrate. Oh, boy. We emigrate to Canada. Refugee status. All right, I'm down. It's official. We're moving to Canada. All right, let's go. I'm ready. Move to Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, just as so what you could say. We're from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. I was thinking Nova Scotia myself. Moose Jaw, Manitoba. Moose Jaw, Manitoba. Let's go there. Now you're talking. Like we talked about just a little bit ago, the FBI was able to get get listening devices in with the with the milk, and then they were also able to get some in the walls of the building too. Throughout the the 51 days, they recorded a number of conversations that they that the government claims were evidence that the Branch Davidians had started the fire. The recordings were imperfect and many times very difficult to understand. And there were two transcripts made, and they both said different things. So no mm. two people are hearing this stuff the same way. According to reporter Diana Fuentes, when the FBI's April 19th tapes were played in court during the Branch Davidian trials, few people heard what the FBI audio expert claimed to hear. Quote, the tapes were filled with noise and voices occasionally were discernible. The words were faint. Some courtroom observers said they heard it. Some said they didn't. That's like that John Bonet tape where the people are hearing stuff. I didn't hear anything. Dave must have been thinking about the Cucks Across America uh, tagline when Ian said that exact thing earlier in the episode. Oh, did he? When I asked about this. <laughs> and Ian's like, yeah, it's like the John Bonet, uh, the 911 call. He's like, people in the uh, grand jury just didn't hear uh, what they said. I, I missed that I'm part. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Dude, let's be honest. I zone out there about 95% of these episodes. My trivia record shows that. I'm just kidding. Not 95%. <laughs> He'll douse your spouse. <laughs> hey, it was worth it. You came up with that great tagline. <laughs> but yeah, you see that all the time on like audio transcriptions. Like, yeah, that's not what I fucking hear on that. Yeah. I hear... Well, we listen to the John Bonet thing and you can't really... Yeah, you can't hear anything. Yeah. Nonsense. Over the course of the 51-day standoff, the Branch Davidians had given uh, really ominous warnings involving fire on several occasions. And it, this it may or not be indicative of their future actions, but the basis for the conclusion of Congress was that the fire was started by the Branch Davidians, quote, absent any other potential source of ignition. I disagree with that. Those fire capsules have started fires in the past based on what I've read. Yeah. And uh, absolutely a potential source of ignition. What would be the motivation? Like the branch of Indians are just trying to burn themselves alive. Are they trying to just make it shit. look like like so? Is that is that the angle that they're going with? Like I don't understand why they would start the fire. 
like of their yeah, own compound. Yeah. What, what's the angle for they that? They weren't really a doomsday cult. I mean, they weren't Heaven's Gate kind of. But that's I think deals. that's that's what the FBI was trying to make them look yeah. like. You know, they kept talking about well, yeah. there's going to be a mass suicide or whatever. But I'm just trying to think if you're actually the Branch Davidians, what is what would be the purpose of setting it on fire? You already admitted you don't want to leave the house. Why would you set it on fire and force yourself to leave or be killed? I agree. They're, I think they're pr- trying to paint them in a light that really is not accurate. Right. They and if that kind of a cult. If you were going to do a suicide, you would just why wouldn't you just shoot yourself? It's a lot quicker than burning everybody. Who wants to burn to death? Right. right? It's a it. horrible death. Yeah. So I, I just don't. I'm not saying I have a side with this one. It seems more likely that it might have been, like you said, Dave, like the, the capsule, the gas, whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't have a motivation for why the Branch Davidians would do it. I, I agree with that. So that's what I, that's what I struggle with. I mean, with. There are, you know, you, you have to discount those those audio transcripts, though. They, they seem pretty indicative that they're pouring gasoline or trying to. But then when the, the jury heard them, they're like, you can't. It's discernible. Uh, you, you can't yeah. really make it out. So I don't know. It's vague. It's, for, yeah. it's absolutely vague. Well, in in that conclusion that Congress came to, it was prior to the FBI's admission that pyrotechnics were used. But after a year-long investigation by the Office of Special Counsel, after that admission, they still reached the same conclusion Mm. that the uh, Branch of Indians started the fire and no other congressional investigations followed. They didn't start the fire. Ryan started the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. Ryan started the fire. Fire guy Ryan. Cheese pita. Almost burnt Dunder Mifflin to the ground. During a 1999 deposition for civil suits by Branch Davidian survivors, fire survivor Graham Craddock was interviewed. He stated that he saw some Branch Davidians moving about a dozen one-gallon cans of fuel so they could not be run over by armored vehicles, heard talking of pouring fuel outside the building, and after the fire had started, something sounded like, quote, light the fire from another individual. Well, that's uh, some, I feel like a good eyewitness account. I don't know. I feel like every paragraph I read, like our <laughs> opinions are changing. <laughs> it's just a lot of... Uh... I don't know how you categorize this. It's a lot of back and forth on both sides without any definitive proof, I guess. Yeah, it's just, I don't know. It makes for good conversation, I guess, but we're not going to get any real answers. You're never going to know. You know, and the thing, too, is that we, we, we've talked about and we, we said that this is next week we're going to do Oklahoma City. And this was a big, one of the big factors in Timothy McVeigh's mind as to why he went through with what he did with bombing the Merrill Building. So the Oklahoma City bombing that happened in April of 1995 caused the media to revisit many of the real questionable aspects of the government's actions at Waco. And many Americans who previously supported the actions began asking for an investigation. By 1999, as the result of some documentaries as well as allegations made by advocates for the Branch Davidians during litigation, Public opinion held that the federal government had engaged in some serious misconduct at Waco. A Time poll conducted on August 26, 1999 showed that 61% of Americans believed that federal law enforcement officials started the fire at the Branch Davidian complex. Wow. And this is where things get really, really shitty with, with this in, in conspiracy theory-like, because obviously there was, there was very questionable things done by the FBI and stuff, but... Like almost immediately after this happened, documentaries started coming out 
with some really, really wild claims that weren't accurate, blaming it on the government. A lot of publications were doing the same thing. So it was fueling people like Timothy McVeigh and all those kind of people. And there was charges that the government had fired shots into the complex on the April 19th siege. And these were based on forward-looking infrared video recorded by the Night Stalker's aircraft that was flying above during the siege. Yeah. These tapes showed 57 flashes with some occurring around government vehicles operating near the complex. The Office of Special Counsel conducted a, a field test of these infrared of the infrared technology on March 19, 2000 to determine whether gunfire caused these flashes. The tests were conducted under a protocol agreed and signed to by the attorneys of for the experts and for the Branch Davidians and their families, as well as the government. So everybody was on the same page with this. Yeah. Trying, to, trying to get to the bottom of it. Right. And afterwards, it showed that the location of the flashes indicated that they resulted from a reflection off of debris on or around the complex rather than gunfire. Mm. But like I said... The documentaries had already been out. The, the The propaganda was made almost immediately for this and was already pumping out the idea like, look, there's your federal government just shooting rounds into this right. place. Like, they're not letting people leave. But there's a certain segment of the population that no matter what the truth is, they're going to believe that. Yeah. I agree with that. Always. Well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and there's just for on both sides, people from the get go are going to either side with the Branch Davidians or with the federal sure. government. Some people, and they're going to stick to that no matter what happens. Yep. The special counsel considered whether the use of active duty military at Waco violated the Posse Comitatus Act or the Military Assistance to Law Enforcement Act, basically saying like you can't conduct military operations against U.S. citizens. These statutes generally prohibit direct military participation in law enforcement functions, but do not preclude indirect support such as lending equipment, training in the use of equipment, offering expert advice, and providing equipment maintenance. The special counsel noted that the military provided, quote, extensive loans of equipment to the ATF and FBI, including, among other things, two tanks, and note that the offensive capability had been disabled the, on these tanks. The ta yeah, they weren't, yeah, they weren't fully operational shooting big shells. Right, but they still had Used tanks strictly to destroy buildings and walls. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which and, is um, good, and, I guess. And apparently but, skulls, based on... Yeah. Additionally, the military provided limited advice, training, and medical support. The special counsel concluded that these actions amounted to indirect military assistance within the bounds of applicable law. After all this litigation and you know the criminal stuff, the civil stuff, David Kresh's lawyer called the Danforth report a whitewash. Ramsey Clark, a former U.S. Attorney General who represented several Branch Davidian survivors, and relatives in a civil lawsuit said that the report, quote, failed to address the obvious. History will clearly record, I believe, that these assaults on Mount Carmel Church Center remain the greatest domestic law enforcement tragedy in the history of the United States. Ooh, it's a bold statement there because uh, there's a lot of them. Yep. And while the Waco siege was taking place, there were tons of protesters from many different radical right-wing groups that we've talked about the past two weeks. Not everybody out there was racist. There were some people that went out there to see what was going on, family members, all kinds of... It just generated a whole group of people. But in attendance at the Waco protest was Timothy McVeigh 
In two years to the day of the Waco siege, on April 19, 1995, the deadliest domestic terrorist attack would take place in the U.S., and that's where we'll pick back up next week. That's a fucking teaser right there. Yep, that asshole was out there selling all his uh, all his propaganda bullshit. Mm. He had bumper stickers and everything else yeah. out there he was selling. Woo. Yeah, I remember when that happened. That was crazy. I really, I mean, I remember hearing about it, but I, I don't really, I mm. didn't follow any of it. I was a kid. But. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I was like, three. <laughs> Your pal Dave, born nineteen ninety two. Oh boy, so that's been that's been two intense weeks on Waco. Yeah, I don't know, man. I'm torn on this whole on this this whole thing. All right, let's get get into the final thoughts. What, yeah. You want to get into your final thoughts? I I don't know. I think there's a lot of blame to go around on both sides. I mean, just like Ruby Ridge. It was just mishandled across the board. And in both situations, there was like there was ample you just opportunity. Would have surrendered. Yes. Ample opportunity to defuse the situation. Right. It, you know, yes. if Randy Weaver and his family would have submitted, then that it would have been over yep. quickly. Yep. If the Branch Davidians would have submitted, it would have been over. You know, at any one time, those Branch Davidians could have left the house. Now, we talked about what yeah. they brainwashed, what was a decision. But in the end, they were free to leave. And, you know. I got a lot of issues with that when you're letting your kids die because of I, whatever I, I you agree. might believe. Did the government make a lot of mistakes here? Yes. But what are they supposed to do? I mean, you have to do something. You can't, they have to do can't something. just go on indefinitely. Sure. sure. I don't fault them for that. This could have been a, a nothing misdemeanor case. They could have walked out, interlocked their fingers, put them on the back of their heads, laid on the ground. This would have all been thrown out. The ATF would have got their publicity photos. Nothing would have ever happened. They'd be back there right now with their silly church. Right. It's just a waste. It's a waste of life. And it's a waste of kids. Innocent kids were it's killed just, because of this. It's just dumb. All of it. Yeah. It's a complete waste. It didn't have to happen. Ian, what are your final thoughts? I, I pretty much agree with everything that you guys just said. I mean, David Koresh, at any time, he could have let his people leave and stopped with that guilt trip shit of saying that you're going to be leaving yeah. your salvation yeah. if you right. leave. That's extremely selfish for him to do that. And this, and he I was a smart like, guy. He, like, he didn't really believe that, I feel. Yeah. I don't fully think he believed it either. Yeah. I, I think to an extent. extent what the deal was. Yeah. I think to an extent when you're a cult leader like that, you start to convince yourself with some of it. I do. I, I think he maybe believed it to an extent. Maybe yeah. not as far. You know, he just, you know how to bullshit. These guys are charismatic and they know how to lie and they know how to yeah. manipulate. People get self-important, man. to an man. extent, yeah. I, I, they start to believe yeah. that they're more important than they are. And, you know. I, I think whether or not they started the fire. Um, it's irrelevant, David right? Koresh, David, David Koresh was going to take everybody down with him regardless, yeah. one way yeah. or another. He, he showed no signs of wanting to leave peacefully throughout that whole process. I wonder if I mean, the people would have. There's lots of fault on the government too. I, I, there's something real, real shady about how all the communicate, like the timeline, just stops from 8:24 a.m. till like nine o'clock. Yeah, that's that's crazy. What ha what yeah. happened in all that time? Yeah, is strange. The fact that it took them six years to admit that they were shooting off pyrotechnic yeah. Uh, yeah. devices. You know, they're, I, I they're, agree. They're, it's I know, just we don't know the situation. Yeah, we don't know necessarily. I guess the timeline of when Koresh was killed. But do you think if the other people would have known that he was dead and that Steve was dead, would they have given up? Would they have left? Do you think? Or was it already too late? Were they already trapped? Were they already dead? I mean, I guess there's a lot of what ifs. But if they were able to and they knew he was dead, do you think they would have left? I almost feel like they would have. 
because then they wouldn't have had like that, that guilt trip over them of yeah. him. Probably. What a selfish son of a bitch. I also feel like that they could have waited for six months and they would have still been in the same situation. I don't think he was coming out. No, he, he was playing he was. games. No. Yeah. Yeah, he was playing games. So at some point, you have to do something. I you have to do something. Maybe they did the wrong thing, but... Well, I think we talked about it earlier. What are that their sni- options? That sniper thing would have been the best. Like there's you could a have somehow yeah. sniped him. There's a scene in a movie where this jackass is playing guitar and singing like in the window. Like right were there, there were there opportunities where a sniper could have put one in his forehead that weren't taken? Because that seems like it was the best, you know, course of action here. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. We forgot to even bring that up while they were while he was they were doing the sound shit. They got their generator started up, and he combated the sound torture with playing music. Yeah, yeah out the playing his right. band could, out the window. You're right. They could have they could have sniped him right then and there, and it would have been done. I that, think. I mean, hindsight, of course, but that would have been the best course of action. Shoot him right there, hundred percent. And then what? Probably that Steve guy's in charge, and he had a little bit of a heart, a little bit of sense. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what lawfully what that concludes, but what from what I've read over the past. Uh, couple weeks is that the law wasn't really in anybody's mind in a lot of this stuff i think that's correct (laughs) clearly so just do what you have to do and be done with it i guess at that point and then i mean you can also spin it you know if they would have killed koresh they could have just spun it you know we saved lives by killing him you know and one person would have died and 75 people would not have right yeah yeah the only other thing i'll say about it that i'm that i'm super excited for next week with uh, Oklahoma is to show that the date of April 19th, 1995 wasn't just the two year anniversary of, of Waco that there's a lot more to that date in the white nationalist, white separatist, the whole racist movement. There's a lot to that date that uh, it makes it super specific, even more than just Mm. the two year anniversary of Waco. More teasers coming next week. Is Oklahoma City, Ian, of the the three that we've covered, Ruby Ridge, Waco, and Oklahoma City, is that the one that you've been most hyped for, or was that Waco? Probably Waco. I, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm, there's there's a lot to, uh, I don't know, Oklahoma and Waco are kind of tied for me, because Waco is really interesting. Like I said, there's a lot to that date of April 19th, 1995, yeah. uh, so, and it's very interesting. There's also some other stuff we'll get into with that about this this mysterious olive-skinned man that was with Timothy McVeigh all the mm. time. Woo. We're going to have some conversations. Isn't, isn't so, Hitler's he, birthday the next day? Is that tying in here at all? I don't know, but I'll look into it. <laughs> April 20th, right? I think, it, I think Hitler's it. April 20th. Was that Columbine, too? Uh, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. yeah, That's what I always think yeah. of that is Columbine. Yeah. So, all right. We got anything else to cover with Waco, Ian, or we touch on all of it? I think we got all of it. Dave brought up the the stupid band playing shit, so I think we got it all. The stupid band playing shit. Dave, you got any last uh, last thoughts? Uh, say, Ian, uh, get yourself an intern for Cooldown Media. It's, it's great to have an intern. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. President. We'll see you next week. Blowjobs and cigars. <laughs> Terrific. <laughs> um, all right. We have a, some shout-outs. We have a ton of shout-outs for Patreon. God Damn. Um, we are at patreon.com slash necronomapod. Shout out to Jessica McCullough, Susan Huddy, Karen Person, Amy Britton, Haley Runkus, Jennifer West, Nicole Fleming, Kat, Rose Brennan, Ricky Sanderson, Ashley Kirchner, Dr. Goodwood, MD. Hell yeah, Dr. Goodwood, MD. <laughs> Can we hire him at Dave's uh, Unlicensed Gyno Shop? Well, say it's your gig. Yeah, send me your resume. Josephine Glick, Tom Tillos, 
Kathy Jarvis, Bridget Schmidt, Luke Anderson, Tyler Roth, Kyle Fuston, Mr. Sam R. Pluck, Laura Blackberg, Katie Bowling, Jason Lyons, Glenn Wobick, Danny Ray, Joshua Steiner, Sarah Iverson, Cassandra Valderrama, Delaney Moore, Ashlyn Lee, Doug St. Peter's, and Nicole Malman. And another cat. Two cats. One Patreon. Yeah. Wow. Lots of cats. Yeah. I think she just signed up that cat. Last minute here. Thank you very much. We're at patreon.com slash Necronomapod. We have the $1, $5, and $10 tiers all available. We appreciate all your guys' support. Thank you very much. Ian, what do you got? Shout outs. For iTunes, I have one for Autist U, Swen Chris, Ashimal, Emily Komen 989 Summer Loves True Crime, and Josh Cyber. Thanks, guys, for the awesome reviews. All right. What about Chauvinist? That was a good one. Oh, that's right. You want to talk about that one for a minute? <laughs> that was a good review from someone who titled their review Chauvinist, and I quote, S-H-O-V-I-N-I-S-T, <laughs> who uh, did not like the show. One star. Yeah. They did not Called like us more or less garbage and halfwits, but I would suggest that someone who doesn't know how to spell the word Chauvinist should not go casting aspersions on halfwits. How dare you call me a shovenist? <laughs> <laughs> So, oh, I don't know. Maybe learn how to spell and then come come back at us next time. Yeah. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll talk to you guys next week. All right. You guys ready for a cool down beer? Cheers.